In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You'll have to forgive my little scratchy throat. I'm not sick, but here's what happened. I, I love eggnog. Like, I'm obsessed with it, right? So I put it in my coffee during this time. Actually, by week one of Advent, I'm doing backstrokes through eggnog. But anyway, <clears throat> I put it in my coffee, and it always makes, you know, singers will tell you, don't drink milk or, or eggnog before you speak. So it's just, uh, just my morning coffee and working itself out. Well, listen, um, it's good to be with you all. My name is Father Lucas. I'm a, a chaplain at Air Force Active Duty Military Chaplain Station at McDill Air Force Base with Special Operations Command. Uh, it's our honor as a family to worship with you. Um, as often as we are able, and, and Father Mike was kind enough to invite me to, to celebrate this morning, so it's an honor to be with you. Um, and we all know, of course, um, that the theme and fourth and final week of Advent, um, as we journey towards the mystery of the main, is, of course, love, as was uh, shared this morning as we lit the candles. The love of the Father for His creation, the love of the Father to send His one and only Son into the world, not in power and might, as we might have expected, but incarnated, enfleshed, in infantile frailty, humility, and contingency. That is a reality, I would argue, that none of us should ever get too comfortable or familiar with, lest we lose the sense of scandal and wonder that it truly is. The astounding, astounding love revealed in, of all places, a feeding trough. In the hay, blood, and dirt that covered the Christ child as he, as God, lay in an animal pen in first century Palestine. But love is an interesting thing, right? It is not only affection, provision, sacrifice, or however else we might define it. Love is also perhaps less to our liking, demonstrated in revolutionary and prophetic judgment. And we need not look any further for an example of this harder love, let's say, than Mary's song in our gospel passage from Luke. Her prophetic magnificat which immediately follows, mind you, her own demonstration of profound love for God when she humbly declared yes, yes to the Father. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your word. And then in our passage, beginning in verse 39, Mary further declares God's love that will soon have its own voice through the cries and coos of the infant Christ. Here Mary speaks a prophetic word that is nothing short of revolutionary, upending, and an insurgent kind of love. There is loveliness in the Magnificat, writes one commentator, but in that loveliness there is dynamite. Hence the title of this homily. And so it is, the words of Mary, from her dialogue with the angel Gabriel to the one here with Elizabeth, the truth in love behind them, those words, like dynamite, we should not be too comfortable with or unimpressed by. For as soon as we do that, as soon as we do that, we risk losing the sense of wonder and awe contained in them. 
And we know, of course, that wonder and awe are a prerequisite for worship. You don't worship that which you fully comprehend or understand. So wonder with me and ponder in your heart, as Mary did, what these words mean for you this morning on this feast of our Virgin Mother. The setting of our gospel passage, of course, of Mary's song, she sets out in haste, presumably under the protection of Joseph, we're not told, and she goes to an unnamed Judean town where she is greeted by her cousin Elizabeth in one of the most beautifully, I think, feminine scenes in the Bible. It is so precious. Two glowing pregnant women joyfully celebrating, affirming, and speaking life into one another when by all accounts and social norms, the elder Elizabeth should have rejected her own kin for being pregnant out of wedlock. And so even right there, this theme of revolution and upheaval that the entire passage will take from the very greeting, roles and norms are being reversed. And so Elizabeth, speaking in her own prophetic voice, being filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 41, because remember, we're not told in the text how she knew that Mary was pregnant, right? It's not there. They didn't have a, a postal service or Facebook to share news of, or in the latter's case, a mind-numbing amount of cat videos. But Mary arrives <laughs> at the home, and Elizabeth, rather than condemning the teenager, declares to a woman young enough to be her granddaughter, blessed are you among women. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So again, ponder it. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, knew and prophesied at least three things there. Mary's blessedness or holiness, right? Or set-apartedness, if that's even a word. From all other women. Okay, so there is indeed something about Mary that too many Christians overlook or downplay in a stark denial of the biblical witness, number one. Second prophetic word, the fact that she is with child. Again, we don't know how Elizabeth knew that. And thirdly, this, the, the identification of that child as her Lord, her master. It's really important that we don't gloss over this, nor should the fact that John the Baptist, in utero, being a full human person, right? A person is a person no matter how small. Just as Jesus was also a full human person in the womb, he leaped for joy when he came near to his Lord. It should bring tears to her. Think of that. And the, and the Greek word for leaped there, it's skirteo. It suggests an eschatological recognition. That is, a recognition between two babies in the tummies of the salvation and coming fulfillment of God's promise to his people. It's the same Greek word used uh, in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis 25 when Esau and Jacob jostled inside Rebekah's womb, foretelling of their own destinies in Israel's salvation story. It's just so profound, or as my Australian father would say, it's so bloody profound and precious. <laughs> and that works in a lot of ways, but yeah. Uh, and it's revolutionary. 
It's revolutionary, this entire encounter. Again, there is loveliness in the Magnificat, but in that loveliness there is dynamite. So Elizabeth prophesies these things to which Mary responds in her own prophetic voice and dwelt not only with the Holy Spirit that had come upon her, but having God incarnate contained in her very womb. She proclaims the kind of divine love that is not only uplifting and comforting, but radical and revolutionary. A proclamation, by the way, that is considered by many theologians and not just the staunch Catholic ones to be the most revolutionary words ever spoken apart from Christ himself. That's a statement. And I would agree. If you really want to get into this and kind of be a nerd about it, study the parallels between Mary's words here and Hannah's song of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's pretty cool. And really, when you consider Mary's language, the words she uses, and the divine actions that she, she prophesies about, Luke Timothy Johnson, a well-known scholar, is correct when he concludes that, quote, Mary here has made the representative, if not personification, of Israel itself. Slide, please. Look at this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of a servant. And then verse 15 and following. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So even in these four verses alone, we clearly see the salvation story of Israel. Amen? It's all there. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Is not just intended for Elizabeth and anyone else who was in earshot, but for all of God's chosen people, past, present, and future, and including you and I here today. He has shown the strength of his arm, brought down the mighty from their thrones. And we call to mind here the times God rescued Israel from its oppressors, every time he did it. You have also in this prophetic utterance three specific revolutions that God is directing. You have, number one, a moral revolution. Look at the text. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. You have a social revolution. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. And you have an economic revolution. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. It really is an astounding progression, if you look at it, from lifting up to bringing down the various powers that Israel and her people confronted. And it is absolutely intended to grab the hearer and reader's attention. Namely, that God's ferocious love speaks both truth to power and it lifts up the humble to those of low estate. God's love not only pours out mercy, it scatters pride, brings down thrones, and not only the gilded thrones out there, but the ones in our hearts as well, in my heart. 
the ones that we have built up and seated ourselves on. And that's really the point of challenge or application in Mary's song for the life of the church today and for each of us as members of the body. If God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which he is, then he is still in the business of reformation and revolution. Yet the fact remains that most people are skeptical of revolutions that they don't start themselves. I know I am. We'll take the kinder, gentler John Lennon revolutions, right? Doing great things, showing mercy, filling up the hungry. But if you're like me, when God starts doing the Jeremiah-type stuff, uprooting and tearing down, destroying and overthrowing in my heart, in my pride, in my ego, when he starts confronting not just the principalities and powers out there, but as I said, the thrones and idols that I've built for myself, that's when faith is tested. That's where obedience is refined. Both compassion and upheaval have their place in the all-consuming love of God. And so if Advent, if Advent's about preparing the way of the Lord, about God's arrival, may it be, may it be that we would join in Mary's song and welcome as she did with obedience, joy, and humility, all the mercies and revolutions, whether lovely or dynamite, not just in the story of Israel and for the life of the church, but also in those he has in store for us. They are born of his love and they should be received as Mary, Mary did. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be unto me according to your word. Guys, that is the, that is the perfect posture of any Christian, isn't it? Arms wide open, as I imagine she did. Surrendering, saying yes to the Father. Whatever you want with me, Lord, do it. Is why Mary, more than any other figure in the Bible, is my hero in the faith. And Luke one thirty eight is my life's verse. Saying yes to the Father and all that He wants to do in your life and for His glory. So what is God, I ask, what is God renewing and building up in you this Advent season? Or what is He perhaps casting out and sending away in this season of preparation? to ponder that in your heart as Mary did and to listen for the Spirit to reveal the all-consuming love of God will be an Advent well spent. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.